Going Linux, episode 326, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will help you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want to send us feedback, our email address is goinglinux at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Today we have a number of emails Before we get started, I'd like to let you know about a new book that I've authored. It's called Ubuntu Mate, Upgrading from Windows or OS X. This book is a detailed discussion of Ubuntu Mate and its major applications. It's written for users switching from other operating systems, but it's not only for users switching from other operating systems. It's also a reference for anyone using Ubuntu Mate. If you're upgrading from Windows or OS X, you'll find our suggestions for personalizing Ubuntu will make you feel right at home. I've published it on Smashwords, a self-publishing site that allows you to download a sample copy in a number of different formats. It's available in EPUB, Mobi, LRF, and more online. And the sample copy is available now. You can read about the book on the Smashwords site, as well as pre-order the book if you wish. It is due for release on August 1st. Right now, the price is a special introductory price that you get if you pre-order the book before August 1st. And after the book is released on August 1st, 2017, the price will go up to the full price after its release. We'll include a link in the show notes to the book on the Smashwords site. It's smashwords.com slash books slash view slash 731432. But we'll have that link in the show notes. Now, on to our emails. Our first email is from Greg. He writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. I've had a couple of thoughts for program material. I don't know how you keep coming up with something new. Anyway, these ideas are uses for older machines or even new low-power ones. Ubuntu Server Edition, a command line distribution with the option of installing a LAMP server, Linux Apache, MySQL, and PHP with one click. It makes a very light system to play with for other purposes, especially if you leave off installing LAMP. I installed Bash Potter on mine to automatically collect podcasts and GNU MP3D to serve my music collection to my home network via its built-in HTTP server. It serves AUG and video content too. It runs just fine on an old Dell GX240 with a 1.5 GHz Pentium 4 processor. Home Entertainment Centers. Two Linux packages come immediately to mind. Kodi, formerly XBMC, and MythTV. 
Cody is a full-featured home entertainment center including such niceties as remote control with your iPhone or Android. It's immensely configurable with a myriad of plug-in packages available, both official ones from the Cody folks and unofficial ones from other sources. Myth TV is also basically a home entertainment center, but its major feature in my mind is its built-in DVR with automatic commercial skipping. It does require the installation of a tuner card or an external TV tuner, such as those made by Hopog and others. My Myth TV backend runs on another old Dell GX240, this one with a 1.7 GHz Pentium 4 processor. Wanting the best of both worlds, I have Kodi with a Myth TV PVR plug-in installed on Ubuntu running on a little Intel home theater NUC, feeding my big screen TV in the family room. Now I can watch recorded TV with no commercials, view my favorite videos from the local hard drive in the NUC, listen to my favorite music from my Ubuntu server, and much more. Both Kodi and MythTV are in the Ubuntu repositories. And then if you really want to play, there are ways of installing Plex on a FreeBSD-based NAS for free NAS server. Excellent. Have fun. Regards, Gregory. Well, thanks, Greg. Very, very interesting uh, uses. And they may be topics for future podcasts. I have tried uh, and actually use Kodi on a fairly regular basis. It's powering my high-definition TV in the family room as well. And I certainly have enough old computers around here I could do something like this. I just don't have time. <laughs> Maybe a review of Kodi or something like that. But I know the uh, folks over at Jupiter Broadcasting have done this. Well, their review's pretty old. Maybe I could do something new. Anyway, I'll keep it in mind. Thanks, Greg. Our next email is from Sebastian. Hey there, Bill and Larry. I'm just following up on episode 322 and 324. I would like to thank everyone who helped and tried to help me. As you know, I moved to a 240 gigabyte SSD to have a little more space. As for the NCDU utility that several of you have suggested, I didn't know about it either, but I have to say it's really good software to keep. I can easily manage my disk usage with it. I try to unmount my backup disk as some suggested, and the problem was there. 80 gigabytes of hidden backup file in my slash media slash backup folder. Now I only use 15 gigabytes on my main SSD. Again, a big thanks to everyone that helped me solve my issue. And I have to say, this is why I love Linux and this podcast. The community is amazing. Keep up your good work. And I can't wait to listen to your next podcast. Sebastian. Well, Sebastian, I'm glad we were all able to help you out. And again, I think you said it best. The Going Linux podcast community is amazing. Thanks to everyone in the community who helped out. Now, George from Tulsa. I looked at the Mate PDF. He's talking about the book, uh, especially because the title is Upgrading from Windows to OS X. Thought you might have the magic key to installing Linux on a Mac. I've done it, but only in dual boot mode. The Mac OS was really useful in setting up the quote, first partition division between OS X and Linux, and by installing either Refind or Refit. 
is there magic now? This setup wasn't plug-and-play or even simple, and didn't really work so well. Slow on the Linux side when I installed. Well, George, nope, I don't have any magic, and the book really doesn't go into installing on a Mac. It does go into detail on how to install on a PC. You're absolutely right, refined, refit, and all those things are necessary on the Mac. Um, I have... Um, done some installation or attempted some installation on a Mac. Suffice it to say, I don't have the magic. And if anyone does, I think it's uh, Nightwise. You remember Nightwise? He's been uh, off and on podcasting for a while. Right now, he's more off than on, but uh, he comes back every once in a while to record an episode of his podcast, The Nightcast, from his car or wherever he is. So, uh, He's he's really my go-to person when it comes to uh, Linux on the Mac. I'm sure there are other resources out there as well. Orion wrote about some software for installing on a Mac. He has said, I am using this bootloader on my MacBook to run elementary OS. It is very elegant and works great. I sent him money because it's so great. I prefer it to Grub. I just have to reload it when I do a Mac update. Hope this helps your listeners, and thanks for the show. And we'll have a link to rodsbook.com slash refined. And that's one of the utilities that George was talking about in his previous email. So thanks for that, Orion. Next up is Steve, who wrote, In response to Bob, who was looking for a way to program the extra mouse buttons on a Logitech M570 trackball mouse, I would like to suggest a program I discovered a few years ago. I needed to configure my Belkin Nostromo device that had no driver or configuration program available, or at least easy to use, and found Pystromo. While there are now some programs for setting key bindings easy for controllers and Nostromo slash Razor series of devices, I have kept using this and believe it should work for just about any input device. And we'll provide a link to Steve's Pystromo utility uh, in our show notes. He continues, I would be happy to help him set up Pystromo personally if he has not found a suitable program for his mousing needs. So, Bob, if you're listening and you still need some help with your trackball mouse, let me know and I'll put you in touch with Steve. Malte, I think that's how you would pronounce his name. Hi guys, as I was listening to your upgrade part of the last podcast, I remembered that I had quite a funny error message after upgrading from 98 to XP. In the process, something went wrong with the time settings. So when I wanted to remove the 98 backup that Windows created in case something went wrong, Windows told me that it couldn't because the backup files were created in the future. Keeping in mind that some employee actually must have written the error message, I find it very remarkable that they thought of this error. Cheers, Malte. Jim wrote, Larry, are you having problems with Skype? I cannot receive incoming calls and have to go to their website to fetch the voicemail. I can call out whenever someone calls. They're given a message that I am not available. I hope this is only a temporary thing. I tried using Skype online and it gave me the same result. I can access voicemail, but the calls do not come through. One difference is that I cannot call out on a line like I can from the Skype application on the computer. 
I've tried Skype on Windows with the same results. Do you know of any alternatives to Skype where I can have a number and voicemail? Maybe this could be a topic of an upcoming episode, how to use the new Skype. If this is the way it is to be, I will be dropping Skype. Thanks again for a great podcast. Let me turn this over to our community to suggest an alternative to Skype. There are several out there. We've done some reviews in the past quite a long time ago, and I know there are more out there today than there were when we did our last review of voice calling kinds of applications. And I suspect that we are looking for something for Jim that is not uh, something that requires a lot of setup or running a server in his home or things like that. Something that you can subscribe to that other people will get uh, and be able to uh, make calls back and forth to Jim. Now, you know, you could use something like um, Google Voice, I suppose. And as far as what's going wrong with your Skype, I think it's your account. Um, perhaps for some reason they have terminated your account or maybe you're logging into the wrong account. Since your troubles are something that appear both on the Skype application as well as on their website, uh, not being able to connect to a call and folks being told that you are not available, I think your account has either been deleted or there's something wrong corruption-wise with your account. You might want to talk to the folks at Microsoft about that if you can get a hold of them and if they're willing to help. I don't know that they will be, especially if your Skype account is a free account. They might not be all that willing to help unless you actually subscribe to their service and pay them a fee. So I think we're back at looking at alternatives to Skype for you, Jim. So let's uh, see what the community has to say about alternatives, viable alternatives to Skype. John in Dallas wrote us saying, Hi, Larry and Bill. I have a strange occurrence on my Mint 17 in VirtualBox. Ubuntu 16 runs just fine, but suddenly says Ethernet unplugged in settings. It's definitely not unplugged. So now what? All connections are wired. I don't use Wi-Fi. EMI, not good for me. I've tried several tips, but nothing addresses this issue in Mint forums naturally. Thanks for helping suggestions. Great show, guys. You've taught me Linux over the years, John in Dallas. Well, John, it sounds the way you describe it, like it was working and then stopped working because you said suddenly says Ethernet unplugged in settings. If that's not the case, there's probably a different solution. But uh, it sounds to me, for some reason, like there's something blocking uh, VirtualBox uh, access to the hardware network connection. Some things you might want to think about. Have you done any recent updates to VirtualBox or to Mint 17 on your VirtualBox? Or have you done any updates to the host computer where you're running VirtualBox? Uh, any of those might have caused your network connection to fail. Something else you might want to check out if you've messed around with things like 
firewall settings, either in Mint 17 on the virtual box or on your host system. You might want to try turning off the firewall, both if you have it in both cases, and see if that fixes the problem as well. Those are just some suggestions to get you started. I'm sure there are more, but until we know a little bit more about what's going on, I think that's where I'm going to leave it for now, John. Paul Rodas saying, hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks so much for the great episode. I've been listening for over five years and look forward to your podcasts. When I load a new program from Synaptic, I know the origin is from the repository. When I load a program from a website like SourceForge, I recognize the provider of the software. When I load a program from the command line, I don't know the origin of the software. For example, if I download Audacity from SourceForge, is the origin the same if I download it via the command line? I suppose it is universally accepted that loading software from the command line is always acceptable and safe, but I've never questioned the origin. I'd like to know your opinions about software loaded from the command line. Thanks for a job well done supporting Linux community. Paul. Well, Paul, when you run a command to install software from the command line, whether that's apt, apt-get, yum, uh, any of the other possibilities out there. Typically, the Linux distribution, when you run that command, is looking at your software sources. So it's pulling the software from exactly the same place that it would if you were running it from Synaptic or in the case of Ubuntu, the Ubuntu Software Center, or any other uh, Linux from the software repositories that you have in your sources list file. And that's populated when you actually install the software as well as when you add repositories to your computer's software library. So running from the command line is loading the software from the trusted sources you have already told the computer are trusted because you've loaded them that way. So I suspect that you really don't need to worry about installing from the command line using common commands like apt, apt, get, yum, and others. Our next email is from David, who wrote about, quote, the guy with the mysterious full drive from May 5th. I had a similar thing happen with a removed drive. It happened to me with CrashPlan. What I found was if the target drive was not there when attempting to mount the drive, it treated the subfolder in media just as a folder. So when CrashPlan tried to back up, instead of backing up to a separate drive mounted under media, it instead tried to store a huge amount of data in the subfolder under media. The result was it filled up my SSD to the point where the OS couldn't even load fully. His result sounds scarily familiar to what happened to me. And that was Sebastian. And we found in his previous email in this episode that that's exactly what happened to him. David continues, what I had to do is reboot the computer from live USB with the external drives not mounted. So the data in the actual subfolder was shown. Then I wiped the subfolder, remounted the external drive, then rebooted into the OS. It was critical that I do this with the external drive not accessible because I wanted to only delete the orphans on the slash media subfolder that was on the actual SSD. I'm by no means an expert and going off memory, so 
take above with a grain of salt. David. Well, David, that's exactly the right sets of steps. And it's uh, great that you have outlined that for other people. We've talked about Sebastian's problem. We've talked about what the problem could be caused by. We've even talked about what Sebastian's final solution was. But we never talked about how to actually complete the steps to get it done. So you've done that for us, David. Thanks. Heath wrote, Hungry Plex, Larian CEM, <laughs> Chief Executive Minion. Bill is a co-host. Now he's been promoted since then and been given several 100% raises. So uh, yeah, I think he would appreciate being called a co-host today. In episode 322, listener feedback, Sebastian asked about his Plex server eating all his hard drive space. I personally run an MB server, very similar to Plex, and the entire install uses 3.1 gigabytes on a 16 gigabyte USB stick. For his system to consume 100 gigabytes, I wonder if he has his mounts and data directories set up incorrectly. He says he has a separate home, but is it mounted correctly or is the system using home on the main system drive? It's worth checking his Etsy FS tab file. Also, ensure Plex is saving its data, album art, movie synopsis, etc., to home and not to a location on a system drive. In my setup, data is stored in a ZFS data pool mounted at slash ZFS off the root directory, and MB saves its data alongside the related video files. With the exception of the usual dot files, home is not used except when I download packages, which I clear once finished. So, Heath, I think... Your suggestions are great. Um, it turns out that Sebastian's solution was along the same lines as you're getting to here, as we found out earlier in this episode, uh, but not quite the same. Heath continues, I also noted his backup drive mounts at dev slash SDA. He also notes that when he removes the backup drive, the system fails to boot. He should fix this by removing the drive after boot and rebuilding Grub. He should also check his boot preferences in the BIOS slash UEFI to ensure the system drive is selected as the first hard drive and not the external drive. Hope this helps. Heath, listener since 2011, Perth, Australia. That last bit of information, Heath, I think is great advice for everyone. Make sure that before you remove your backup drive, you either unmount the drive or power off your system so that you don't end up with a situation like this. And remember <laughs> to plug it back in before you start up again and start wanting to store uh, information in that backup, especially using an automated backup routine like is used within the media server applications. Greg wrote, Larry and Bill, last March, you had a show about Linux on ThinkPad computers. Charles Tendell went through how he ended up with really good laptops for his employees at a fraction of the cost of new speedy computers. He uses ThinkPad T420s. But that was over a year ago, and the T420 was several years old already. I'm getting to the point where I need a replacement laptop. I'll load up Linux, of course, but I'm hoping you guys can either reach out to Charles or maybe you guys are up on what would be comparable to the performance of his T420. Thanks, Greg. P.S. Hey, Bill, question about 73. Would it really be 73? 
there isn't a 73 in Morse code, but there's a seven and a three. <laughs> Greg, yeah, we've we've been over that with Bill, and he's going to continue to say 73. He's not going to say 7-3. Good try, though. Anyway, uh, for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with why Bill says 73 at the end, he is a ham radio operator, and 7-3 is a goodbye um, expression when uh, uh, you're a ham radio operator. And Bill says, instead of 7-3, he says 73. So that's where we're at with Bill and 73. And as far as Charles Tyndall and the T420s, uh, Charles, if you're listening, get in touch. You're still using those T420s years later? Uh, and Or have you found a new set of uh, old computers that you're using? I suspect knowing these ThinkPads are tanks, he's probably still using them. So Charles, get back in touch. And if I haven't heard from you in a bit, I'll get in touch with you. And maybe we can do another episode. What do you think? I'd enjoy that. And so would our listeners. And our last email is from Joran, who wrote, Hello, I'm listening to episode 322. Yes, I'm a little behind the mo at the moment. A listener was concerned about his rc.local not being run when on a separate partition. And if it had to do with system D, running rc.local shows up as just one more service in system D. If you want to know what happened to it, a start would be to run systemctl, that's all one command, systemctl, space status, space rc-local.service. That would show you if systemd tried to run it, and it should also contain the last messages from the service if it printed any. You suggested a different way to solve the problem, so it maybe it doesn't matter, why it didn't work, but just in case the listener wants to debug it a little bit more, the above might be a good fit. I'm a bit skeptical about the mount explanation. File system mounts should happen way before rc.local is run. I'd look for something simpler. Perhaps the rc.local on the slash user slash local partition isn't executable, for example. Thanks for an interesting podcast. Well, Yaron, thanks again. I think we've solved that problem. It was a disconnected hard drive, and we've got that uh, behind us. But it's good to know from the explanation you've given that there's a way to check to see what's going on uh, with um, this kind of system CTL command. Uh, and there would be a way to get a little bit more information on it if we still had the problem or if someone has this problem in the future and needs a diagnostic tool like this. So thanks. Okay, we'll have links to everything in the show notes as always. With that, we'll call an end to the show. So until our next episode, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. And for Bill, 73.
Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.